Automotive cybersecurity in a highly connected world. A battle that can be won at all. Dear audience, my name is Ludmila Dea. I'm the Managing Director of Elite Experts Conferences and I would like to welcome you to the next episode of the Elite Experts Conferences podcast. Whether at live events or in the digital world, we bring together cool promising tech startups with exciting innovative global players and generate a platform where the world of sustainable technology meets. Get to know the different companies, but also the inspiring leader personalities behind these brand names. Our motto is towards a better and cleaner future through knowledge transfer and technology. Our guests today are Giuseppe Serio and Yanif Maimon. Giuseppe Serio is the VP Market Development at Upstream Security. Giuseppe, you have your background in business administration that you studied in Seattle. You start in professional life might explain why you feel so comfortable in the startup and scale-up environment. After your studies, you founded a consulting company in Italy. However, after two years, you started working for a big consulting company and then your path led you to IBM, where you worked for almost two decades. Since April 2021, you joined the Upstream team in the area of business development. And now to our second guest, Yaniv Maimon. Yaniv is Director of VSOC at Upstream Security. Yaniv, you have your degree in Management and Psychology and you did your Master in Security and Diplomacy for Executives. And your working experience is very straightforward, focused on cybersecurity, be it at IBM or Deloitte or late also at Boston Consulting Group. And in May 2021, so basically only one month later than Giuseppe, you also joined the Upstream team. Let me give our audience a brief description of what Upstream Security stands for. Upstream Security provides a cloud-based data management platform designed specifically for connected vehicles. That enables unparalleled automotive cybersecurity detection and response and data-driven applications. Coupled with Auto Threat Intelligence, the first automotive cybersecurity threat solution Upstream provides industry-leading cyber threat protection and actionable insights that are seamlessly integrated into the customer's environment and vehicle security operations center, or short, VSOC. With cybersecurity, we have a challenging topic today. So let's talk about the technologies behind it, the threats, but also the opportunities. Of course, we will also talk about visions, about collaborations, and also about lessons learned in business and in life. Let's start. Giuseppe and Yaniv, it is exciting that both of you, as different as your profiles are, have consulting experience and were both employed at IBM and started at Upstream Security one month apart at the same time. Before we talk in detail about Upstream, I would like to know on a very human level, Which experiences and milestone on your way are the most useful for you in your current job? Which previous investments in yourself have really paid off so far? Giuseppe, would you like to start? Sure. Thank you, Ludmilla. So many questions at once. So let me try to answer them one by one. So I think for me personally, the milestones that are relevant in the professional career, obviously the first job, which was something in the uh, logistics area that I did. Later on, I moved into consulting with PWCC. 
Later on, I had my own startup. That was another big milestone. And finally, I ended up with uh, IBM and ultimately with, with Upstream in the technology space, if you will, cyber, automotive. That has been relevant for me for the last uh, 20 years or so. Could you also say, like, what is exactly, what can you really transfer from the jobs? Because you just mentioned what you did one by one, one after another, let's say. But what do you transfer from the past to your current job? Like, for example, now scale up uh, space. So it means very fast decision making processes. So is that something that you learned, let's say, when you had your own startup and so on? So something like that. So. Well, it's obviously a different thing if you work for a company that has 400,000 employees or if you work for a company that has around 150 or if you do your own startup and it's just you and a bunch of people who have an idea and want to put that in practice. Each of it has different ways to, to work, a different way to approach work. But I, I think what my takeaway is uh, in general so in larger organizations, it's about sticking to processes so that a larger organization can uh, thrive and, and there's no messing around, I would say. In the startup or in the smaller companies, what's all about is uh, you will go a lot of extra miles because you're much more agile. It's, I would say, less hierarchical as in larger organization. So my takeaway is there's positive sides to both ends. It's nothing that is perfect. But after a long time spent in big organizations, I, I really enjoy being back uh, and, and do something that I'm really passionate about in an environment which uh, encourages your own initiatives and bringing in your, your ideas rather than be part of a much larger ecosystem. So that's something that I would say is characterizing uh, my career. I mean, in the end, passion is something that is deciding anyway. It doesn't matter if you're in, let's say, a big corporation or in a scale-up. And Yaniv, what about you? I think sort of looking back on, on some of the experiences that I had, I think I was very lucky to work a lot with smart people. And uh, you mentioned before in the intro the, the companies that I used to work with. Uh, so working in these large, you know, prominent organizations, not just the ones that I was working uh, for, but also for our clients. You know, these big companies that invest a lot in the body of knowledge they produce over time, especially in consulting. And I think uh, also being exposed to sort of the inner workings some of the, the best and you know, leading world-class companies out there. There's a lot that, that you can learn from that. Also, my experience, I think, uh, sort of a wide range of different industries. I think there are a lot of specific lessons that you can learn from, from each industry. Usually, there are you know, some focuses on every industry. When you have sort of a, a wide range of experience, you get to, to learn a lot from that. The same goes for different practices and geographies that, again, had the, the, the privilege of, of working globally. And maybe lastly, in, in the realms of cybersecurity, I also had a chance to sort of shift in and out between being a generalist in cybersecurity, so to practice wide areas of that domain, and also to be very niche in, in, in some cases, have very niche specific expertise which is more or less what I do today at Upstream. There are pros and cons to, to each one of those. And I think I had a chance to sort of experience both. And I learned a lot from that in the process. Very nice. And now we're actually moving to uh, the focus of Upstream. So Giuseppe, would you like to give me uh, the understanding of what is the higher meaning of Upstream? What is the vision for this company? Yeah, so Upstream was established 2017 in uh, Israel. The idea at the end of the day was to 
challenge the status quo, meaning that cybersecurity for the connected vehicle, for the most part, was related to product. So cybersecurity within the vehicle. What was really new by, by Upstream is to take a step up and look from the cloud side of things, so outside of the vehicle, and make the vision or the mission that uh, Upstream has embarked on is to protect smart mobility. And the reason why is very simple. If you think of how societies have evolved over time, it's because of the people being able to move from A to B. Cities have grown and there's growth and prosperity. Now imagine if that today with the advent of connected vehicle and all the ecosystem that goes with it, is inhibited and cannot evolve because of uh, bad things happening. So one thing is safety, and that's something that the industry has been very, very much caring uh, a lot anyhow, because uh, safety is a major concern in the auto industry. But what's really new uh, is the aspect of protecting, because now vehicles are connected to the internet, and that introduces obviously risks. And with that, Upstream is is there to help and facilitate that these advancements are not endangered because of uh, cyber attacks. Very, very noble vision. And actually, I'm glad that you didn't say like we were founded to disrupt the industry because I cannot hear that anymore. But to challenge the status quo, that's something I like. Okay. So as we mentioned already several times, so Upstream is an Israeli scale-up company. So Basically, I call you a scale-up company because uh, you are too well-known to be called a startup anymore. However, most startups that operate in the cybersecurity space, they have founding story that has something to do with Israeli military, mostly. So, Yanif, is that also the case for Upstream or what is exactly the founding story of this company? That's interesting. I think I, I do understand where this uh, question comes from. I think if, if you look back enough in almost every you know, company, even IT company, not just cyber in Israel, you will find a connection to the military. However, I don't think that Upstream is sort of that classic uh, company in that sense. So many, many of the startups that you mentioned were founded by people just out of the military. So doing maybe the same thing, something that is close to it, have like a, you know, a team that sort of graduated, so to speak, from the military and did the exact same thing again. I think that Upstream is different in that regard. It may be different from other startups as well, as uh, the founders didn't come directly from the military. And, and uh, they worked together, both uh, Yoav Levy and Jonathan Apple, the founders of, of Upstream, were together at Checkpoint, I think almost uh, 20 years ago, that was founded by military people with military experience coming from that. But I think, again, it, it's different in that regard. And, and in this case, we had two co-founders that come from a much, I think, more experienced place and not just uh, sort of their first venture. And I have been doing this, like I said, over 20 years now. And I think that is in, in some, uh, in many aspects, sort of mirrored in what Upsum is doing, the working with the automotive industry. It is a very mature industry in many sense. And I think this type of experience has led Upstream to be successful in that regard. By the way, it's also interesting when you see the statistics, how the Israeli companies are founded or also the companies in Europe or uh, in US, the average age of the founders in Israel are much, much higher than somewhere in the world. So therefore, I see that also like what, what you mentioned also, like mature stage of founders. So and now I mentioned already previously that you are, you are famous, And now I have a proof to that. So basically, let's talk about the Upstream's 2022 Global Automotive Cybersecurity Report. 
because that became famous in the industry. So, Giuseppe, what is the story behind that report? Yeah, so actually the 2022 report is based on the data from 2010 to 2021. Uh, it was issued in 2022. I would say probably Upstream is not only known for that specific report because that was the fourth report in a series and we're about to release soon also the, the next year's report. I think when Upstream started, and as I mentioned before, sort of uh, challenging the status quo, look at things differently, there wasn't much data about automotive cybersecurity. In fact, it, it was somehow in the industry uh, at the beginning, it wasn't seen as a, a big issue to begin with. But then Upstream, along with its establishment in 2017, one of the things that was needed in order to educate the market at the end of the day, and also for own purpose of addressing what's going on in terms of the intelligence that can be collected for cybersecurity, specific to the auto domain. Nobody was doing it. There was very little comprehensive uh, information about that. So Upstream started to build that. And with that, people started to appreciate the gathering of that data. So over time, the reports have become something that is highly valued. In fact, many CISOs, they literally ask, when is the next issue? And they declare it as a must read for their teams. So it has become really that piece of thought leadership or piece of information that the industry has lacked for many, many years. And today, I would say Upstream is very much known for providing and bringing together. It's about 100 pages long report. So it's really a lot of information that we share with the ecosystem in order to advance on, on our mission, as I said. So we care about sharing that knowledge and that notion of this being an important topic and everyone will benefit uh, who cares about these type of information or is dependent on that type of information. So that's the automotive service report story behind it. You said actually it was not such a big issue. Nowadays we know it is a big issue and you basically gave me also my follow-up question because when is the next issue of that report? <laughs> Yeah, we're we're working on it. Approximately. <laughs> we're working on it. Typically it's end of the year or begin of the year. I would I would imagine that around January we probably will issue it, but it, it's not a commitment because there's a lot of effort. I can tell you something. When I joined Upstream almost one and a half years ago, so the particular uh, report that you're referring to in 2021, it was the first that I also worked on and it's something that the entire organization is passionate about. The entire organization is proofreading, looking into it, bringing new aspects into it. So it's not just a small team who is the editor of that paper. It's actually the entire team of Upstream who is so passionate about bringing that message out and collaboratively bring a piece that is really of value to everyone who reads independent uh, if it's a, a potential customer or we get a lot of attention from from media and analysts because for them, again, it's a source of information that is lacking uh, and was lacking. And that's why we are so, so passionate about it. So I'm definitely interested to get it as soon as possible. You understand? <laughs> so 
And now it's time to get technical. And for technical questions, yes, Yaniv, it's your turn. So security of application programming interface, or in short, I will call it API, is and should be completely different from the security of the application itself. So API is not part of the application. API access control is independent from the app access control. Why is that so? And could you explain also how it is best done? And by the way, I know that Upstream has something new to bring to the market. So could you give us some more details on that? Sure, absolutely. I think maybe we can very shortly define sort of the roles of APIs, right? Application programming interfaces. They're sort of the, the window to the world to some extent. They provide connectivity between different components, between different services, between different capabilities. And that in such, they provide different functions. And as we've seen, I think time in and time out, the more complex you are, the more difficult it is to secure whatever it is that you're servicing. So an, applica- so an API can, for example, be the direct backend of an application. So just tying it back to, you know, to our automotive world. So if you have your mobile companion app and you want to unlock your vehicle, then that request coming from your mobile phone will first meet the API. Then from there, it will go to the backend. There will be many servers, many components there that basically address whatever it is that you like to do. And so there are these at least, you know, two elements of sort of the human to machine interface that they provide and sort of machine to machine interface that the APIs provide to the backend. This is where their complexity lies. And again, this is something that is very, very difficult to properly secure from. And I think that uh, while we were, you mentioned Upstream's uh, uh, solution in that regard, I think while we were working on, you know, securing the vehicles and the data coming in from the vehicles, we realized several things. I think that one, that APIs are a very wide and large attack surface for the most dangerous types of attacks, the one that can affect and impact multiple vehicles simultaneously. And second, I think that we already have the relevant data and capabilities in our platform that we already ingest these high volumes of data and we understand the context of it. We also develop you know, specific capabilities that we have in our platform that allows us to be able to detect and respond to any types of threats that we see in that regard. So everything that we built, many of the things that we built for the vehicles, we can also use and also you are using at this point in time for APIs, you know, for building you know, the, the profiles and, and looking into the behavior of different elements and providing investigation capabilities and automating detection and response. These are basically the things that we started doing with the vehicles and now we do with APIs and we are able to address these these complex uh, threats. I have actually a very fitting follow-up question on that. So API abuse has become rapidly growing attack surface, as you mentioned. So in a real-life scenario, a hacker would first attack the API. So, And what happens then? Could you walk us through the possible steps? Sure. And maybe before I'll give like a simple example of, and let's call it a classic IT type of attacker. And what would the attacker that we are dealing with uh, at the automotive industry and upstream is doing. So a regular attacker would try to attack like we've seen, I think, numerous times in the last 15 or 20 years, starting with uh, reconnaissance, trying to find vulnerabilities in some of the components that are internet-facing, for example. And we try to exploit these type of IT components, type of IT services and servers, etc. And then from exploiting one, basically trying to affect more and more assets within the organization, doing things like lateral movement, trying to exploit that sort of thing. That, let's call it uh, for the sake of the argument, the IT 
regular type of attack. We, we've seen some protective measures in that in the last decade or so, successful to this or that degree. What we're dealing with now in the automotive industry is different. The work that we do with upstream, the type of attackers that we're seeing are not just trying to find simple vulnerabilities and try to exploit them. They're actually trying to exploit the business logic and the business process of these applications. So they have a deep understanding of what, for example, OEMs do and how they operate their application and how they operate their uh, APIs and backend infrastructure and find very specific weaknesses, not even technical vulnerabilities, but weaknesses in those business process, basically to exploit them for their needs. And, and perhaps to give a very you know, practical example of one of the types of attacks that we've seen, something that we've seen for the first time and, and coined it uh, a VIN spray attack, basically an attack that tries to touch the weakness of the initial enrollment process of a mobile companion app of a vehicle and the vehicle itself. And this is usually a very vulnerable place within every business process, basically enrolling for the first time. And we've seen this also in banks in recent years, for the first time that you're enrolling to your bank account with your mobile phone. This is a very sensitive, sensitive process. And there is a lot of thought and a lot of security invested in that regard so that attackers won't exploit it. And so what we've seen basically is an attacker trying to attack exactly that, the pairing of the mobile app with the vehicle itself. And uh, basically we've seen an attacker exploiting the APIs behind that and trying to pair with hundreds of vehicles at once, okay? And we won't go into the details, but basically I would say taking a social engineering type of attack to trick unsuspecting drivers in order to approve that activity. And again, looking just at the IT side of things, these are all valid actions. So someone can try to connect to a new vehicle. That's fine. You need to find the VIN of the vehicle, right? The vehicle identification number in order to do that. But once you have it, it's very easy to get that type of information from the pure technical side of things. This is a legitimate transaction. But once we understand sort of the context, as we look, as we have the data of the vehicles, we have the location of the vehicle, we have the behavior of the vehicle, we have the behavior of the consumer, we know and we are able to spot. And in this case, we're able to detect several attacks of this sort and to stop them in real time. I think, again, this is where things get a bit different between sort of the generic IT types of attacks affecting APIs and things that are very automotive specific and you need a specific context to be able to, one, detect them and then to stop them. Thank you very much for this very nice overview of what is happening actually behind the scenes. And as much as you can use examples, please do that because it makes it more vivid and more tangible, let's say, to understand what is really going on. And now, Giuseppe, if we were to translate kind of of what Yaniv has said into benefits for the customers, because he showed like the what what is actually happening for the For, for you as deep tech company and also for the OEMs. And now let's see at the side of the customer. So what does it mean for you customers? What makes Upstream stand out from the crowd in that field? Yeah, if you take the perspective of the customer, obviously the evolution of the vehicle from a piece of metal uh, or engineering is becoming more and more software. In fact, the buzzword here is software-defined vehicle. So what does it mean? In terms of the evolution of the vehicle and all the aspects of how in the future OEMs want to monetize the services or the features that come into the vehicle to excite customers and to improve the customer experience and the journey, 
it's really important to understand that uh, all this happens by tapping into API. So this is activated by API, those types of services. Actually, you are providing access and entry point into the services that can ultimately manipulate a vehicle. Very uh, simple example. So these days you can start the engine by the click of a button on uh, your smartphone. And what that means is it's not only an opportunity for the OEM to unlock additional value. In fact, it's a, it's a huge business which is projected uh, to grow significantly over the next years. At the same time, it's a big liability. And what it means is you are essentially exposing and giving an access to your products and services. And when you do that, you need to make sure that this is safeguarded in a way that on the one hand, you can ensure those services are active, but at the same time, uh, no harm is happening. So to put what Yaniv just put in perspective from a technical standpoint, the benefit that Upstream has provided in this context is indeed understanding the smart mobility ecosystem and understanding what it means in terms of what's happening as API are activated and services are consumed in the specific case as it happens. Meaning, and again, the wind spray attack, I think is a, is a good example. You want to understand if, if there's a fleet owner who owns several vehicles, then the pairing of one app with multiple vehicles, that's just fine. But if it's a single owner who you expect to have maybe one or two cars, but not hundreds of cars, then it's a suspicious activity if the pairing is going beyond that threshold. So that is really the key here, understanding the context even down to uh, the ECU's level, the, the, the make of, of the vehicle and what it means for those API services to be activated and to be consumed is really important. Also, the magnitude of API in the context of mobility is a total different thing. Again, in the uh, traditional IT, you do not have the scaling of the devices or assets or applications that interact with because that's more or less stable and it stays stable over time. There may be little fluctuations, but in terms of the vehicle and the ecosystem, think of a larger OEM. You add like 10 million cars every year. So that's uh, exponential growth of the attack surfaces. And in order to do that in a way that you can handle it, uh, it's important to understand the specific automotive context. And that's, I would say, in, in fact, the, the, the specifics of the solution that Upstream brings to the market. I have to follow up on something that you said actually at the very beginning. So you said monetizing, let's say on the customer side, but am I naive to say like safety should never be monetized on the customer side? So it should be like, like a must or am I understanding something incorrectly? I would say it's really difficult to establish beforehand what, what is something that you can flag 100% as a security or safety or privacy issue. Again, I think in the context, it can be the one or the other. 
And in fact, when we talk in terms of cybersecurity, cybersecurity is a symptom, a symptom of an anomaly. And that anomaly can be anything between something that is a malfunction of the components or the service. It's just some something to be updated or to be fixed. The other thing is if someone is tampering uh, for instance, unlocking a specific service for their own consumption, or if it's really a large-scale cyber attack by some threat actors who want to make money out of that capability. So it's really difficult to say it's just that. And that's why we believe it's important to have the capability and, and the skills to understand and distinguish between one or the other and have that notion and understanding of of the ecosystem to actually say, okay, I have enough information that gives me a level of confidence to believe it is this or that. That is actually a very nice explanation. Make us uh, clear that what, what is meant is, for example, like features on demand, that they should be protected as well. That's, let's say, included in that. No? So, okay, let's move on and talk about APIs, digital twins. So, Yaniv, how does Upstream's digital twin technology serve your platform in delivering unique API security capabilities? Let's get technical. Sure. And Giuseppe mentioned uh, before the importance of the context of the vehicles and the, the, the context of you know, the activities of the consumers and the APIs. That's exactly sort of the, the secret sauce that we have in, in our platform, which is a digital twin, which is exactly that. Sort of a digital representation of the different assets that we monitor. So it's not just the, the data or the sort of uh, the data stream that we're getting either from the activities of the consumers of the vehicles, but additional data that we can, for example, infer or data that we can enrich from outside sources, external sources that allows us to have a sort of a better view of the assets. And we also have that visibility over time, which is something that uh, is, is extremely hard to do, especially when handling a large scale of data. Uh, Giuseppe mentioned, you know, 10 or tens of millions of vehicles, and we do have you know, even single platforms with that amount of, that volume of vehicles, that volume of traffic. Again, it's that ability for us to have that context and to tie basically both the APIs, the consumers of the application and the vehicles themselves to have this type of visibility that is almost impossible to have if you look just at you know, one of these three dimensions. I hope that you will always be able to scale as the demand will scale as well. No? So, and now, Giuseppe, according to the upstream cybersecurity report, APR-driven attacks in the mobility sector have tripled. And I have really to emphasize that tripled just in the past six months. So let me ask in general, is security or more privacy mostly the target of the cyber attacks? What would you say? So as of today, we have in our report, uh, you can see that how attackers exploit security or privacy these days. I would say in general, it's it's both. So it's security and privacy that is at risk. I think they go hand in hand. In particular, when you mention the attacks on the API and why this has tripled, I think that's a very interesting data point. In fact, it, it is by far much, much faster increasing compared to the attacks on the onboard in-vehicle components like an infotainment system or an uh, OBD2 port or uh, stuff like that. And 
it's very much fitting to what we have been discussing so far, meaning that with the opening of the car being much more software driven, more and more opening up to a smart mobility, I would say compare it to, to the phones. Essentially, a car today is no longer a car. It just happens to have four wheels and it's a mobile computing platform on wheels. And therefore, it's not a surprise, although it's a staggering number to say it's it's tripled. It's It's simply because of that notion that the car and the vehicle and the industry is moving into the software-defined vehicle. And therefore, you need APIs to uh, to enable it. And that's why probably the attackers feel that there's money to be made. So the hackers will follow the money at the end of the day. Obviously, there's other threat actors that we can talk about. And in these uh, times where you have the geopolitical instability, for instance, in Europe, sabotage uh, can be something and, and nation state actors is something to worry about. But generally speaking, if we talk about cybersecurity, you want to look at 360 degree. And the big thing is uh, APIs and how to secure it. So basically, because the car gets always more and more software inside, uh, let's say it, the attacks also can rise. And it's not like the world is getting worse and worse. So I have hope again. So and trust in the in the future. I, I think maybe another uh, way to look at it. And I think we, we mentioned monetization quite a few times. And when the OEMs monetize, then this also opens the opportunity for attacker attackers to monetize as well. And I think this is a very uh, important aspect to look into because with time, this involved, evolved to be sort of the number one driver for uh, attackers in many, in many cases. And I think the more, the more venues for monetization uh, that OEMs will have, the more types of creative ways for attackers that we will see. I think that would be a major driver as we progress in the industry. So always the opportunities to make money attract some hackers, let's say. Absolutely. What it also means, Ludmilla, is that when we talk about software in the car, obviously the, the world of IT and OT or IoT is coming closer. Uh, they're not the same. It will take a lot of time still. But obviously, if we introduce technologies and, and concepts from the IT to the vehicle world, it's a matter of even facilitating attackers who are very familiar in the traditional IT space now to jump also on the car because uh, it's something that they're acquainted with and they can exploit. And in fact, the, the same chips that uh, run, I don't know, in a refrigerator may run in a car or in the microwave oven. Uh, it's uh, pervasive and that's why uh, it's so important to understand the context because if you understand the smart mobility context, uh, you understand much better what is at risk and how to deal with it. Absolutely, yes. And let's talk actually a bit more about trust because the vehicle is programmed in a way that it has zero trust by default, or at least it should be. And then there's the trust and verify approach in cybersecurity. So, Yaniv, can you give some examples on that, how it works? Sure. So zero trust could be the ideal, but I think what's behind this sort of the reality that, you know, everyone makes mistakes, you know, from the programmers to the people running the operations and even us security folks, we, we all make mistakes. And 
think there are there's a lot of effort being put in order to be able to mitigate and and stop that from happening and and just to give there are many examples but to give maybe uh, a prominent one something that we see I think in the automotive industry even more than other places is the complexity of securing the supply chain okay so in OEM they are in charge of building the vehicle right but there are different components from the tier ones that they integrate within the vehicle and that tier ones have components from tier twos and etc and this is uh, for example a, a big part of, of what we provide both OEMs and, and tier ones and the likes of that space is sort of the view on the vulnerabilities of these components something that we do as, as part of our uh, auto threat cyber threat intelligence service that we scout you know the, the dark end of, of the web try to identify the These vulnerabilities and try to identify even more than that exploits of these vulnerabilities so you can have you know many concepts but at the end of the day it could be just one single chip a very small one just one component that this will be the place where you will be hit and, and there's again like I said a lot of effort being put into this for us you know to be able to provide the OEMs to find these vulnerabilities find these exploits in time before this becomes a major problem for them. You know, I'm really building sympathy and trust now because you mentioned the mistakes and the failures and so on. And you studied psychology, you know that. Huh? So when a company says like, we are the best, we never do mistakes, you never trust the people that say that, right? And if you say very humanly like, okay, we do from time to time and we are even looking for those mistakes, let's say. And yeah, that is how to build trust. That, that's really, really good. And I hope that you will find all the Achilles heels, let's call it like this, so in the process. So. And now, Giuseppe, let's go a bit more in the examples. So can you make a short overview and name also some usual and unusual cases of cyber attacks that you deal with on a daily basis? Yes, yeah, so we heard about the wind spray attack. Uh, that's one example that uh, we can certainly mention. There are examples where we found counterfeit ECUs. Yaniv was talking about the supply chain. I think that's an important aspect because ultimately... There is an entire ecosystem building up a car. And in some cases, in some extreme cases, you have only 20% being done by the OM and the rest is coming from suppliers. And what's running in there is a black box. So essentially, along that supply chain, there's a lot of examples where uh, you need to be really attentive and uh, careful about what is sourced. And I would say... When we talk about unusual cases, uh, there are some examples which, yes, they can be tagged as cyber attacks, but maybe they're, they're even funny, like the folks who want to play Doom on uh, some uh, tractors or whatever infotainment systems just for the sake of claiming they can break things or something that happened a few months ago in, uh, in Moscow with Yandex, which was publicized. So again, we're here in the realm of uh, APIs. So apparently some hackers were able to direct and order cabs all to the same location, causing a tremendous chaos in the city because hundreds, if not thousands of cabs were driving in that uh, same location and uh, doing traffic jams. So they did not do real harm, but it shows what, what is possible. And then it's a matter of how you want to target the attack. What is the outcome that you want to have as an attacker and it can be anything between fun and potential harm to life and property at the end of the day so the spectrum 
is really large. And maybe to summarize what uh, Yaniv said, it's an unfair game at the end of the day, because as an attacker, you have an advantage. An attacker has to be right once. As a defender, you have to be right all the time. Absolutely. That is the challenge here. And actually, I'm, I'm curious, what is, if you, if you know the numbers, what is the ratio between the, let's call them the fun attacks and the more serious harm attacks? I'm not sure I have, I have that statistics. I would just guess here. I would say maybe 30% are, are fun or even maybe a little bit more. I, I, actually, I think I can, uh, I can pull in uh, statistics from our last year's report. So in a nutshell, one of the findings in our report says that about 60% of the attacks are done by the bad guys and 40% by the so-called white hat Hackers. So the ones who do it for research purposes or just to become famous because they have been able to crack something which uh, was difficult. So the ratio would be probably along those lines. So 60 to 40. It's just an idea for the hackers that might be listening to us. I mean, you can be hired by upstream and do something good, right? <laughs> that is another way to become famous. But anyway, okay. Let's change the topic a little bit. And um, Yaniv, let's dive also in the topic of VSOX. As mentioned at the beginning, VSOX stands for Vehicle Security Operations Center. So can you give us the definition that best describes what actually VSOX is and what it does? I will. But before that, just to allude to what Giuseppe says, this is a defender that doesn't get the luxury of being wrong. But to put it uh, seriously and, and try to explain the, the VSOX, the VSOX is a is a function that is tasked with predicting, monitoring, detecting, and responding to cybersecurity threats. And starting with predicting, we mentioned, you know, for example, the work that we do in the dark web, try to see you know, the threats as they emerge, if it be offensive research that we do. Again, try to think what attackers would do, looking at the regulation and, and, and looking again on what other people thought could be certain attack vectors. This is sort of the inputs that we gather as what we predict would, would happen. And then we have the actual monitoring and detection itself, something that we do today 24 by 7 for several OEMs. And that's basically detecting the specific type of threats that you want, either are known threats that we're detecting using our platform, could be unknown threats that we're detecting again using our platform and more advanced you know, machine learning capabilities to be able to spot certain types of anomalies and also proactive actions that we take, what we call threat hunting. So looking at the data, trying to find anomalous or outlier activity that could indicate a cyber attack. So that's on the monitoring detection. Then lastly, uh, the response. So in case we do, uh, the VSOCs are able to detect something, is a, there is of utmost importance to be able to respond to it. So we see an attack, we want to be able to stop it. We want to be able to stop it in real time if possible, by ways of automation, in some, some cases, manual intervention. And we also want to be able to provide the information for the OEM, you know, for the organization to be able to protect themselves in the future or prevent this type of attacks moving forward. That's, in a nutshell, sort of what a, a VSOC does. And now let's actually link that to what we discussed before. So, and uh, Giuseppe, what is then the link to what was previously discussed about the API? So, how is it connected together? It means that you can't just look at one uh, silo. And a silo can be the vehicle itself or the companion apps or 
the backend system or the charging station or whatever it is, you need to have a place where you comprehensively 360 degree look at the risk, uh, the exposure and manage and mitigate that risk. So API is one of the elements that you want to see and understand. And we talked a lot about contextualizing information. So in the VSOC, you have the security analysts who understand about automotive, about the product, about the environment that is governing everything. So in a nutshell, the VSOC is the governance framework around everything that needs to be monitored, being it functional, being it uh, cybersecurity, being it privacy. And these days, there is also a conversation about evolving from a VSOC into VOC, so a vehicle operation center, which is uh, monitoring in general all the functionality. Because if you think of autonomous cars in the future, uh, nobody will sit in there and call up the OM and say, hey, I have an issue with my vehicle. Uh, I think there's a malfunction or could you look into that? You need to have the data telling you something and that data and contextualization uh, shall happen in a, a governance place like the VSOC or VOC. Yeah, just to be careful with the autonomous driving nowadays again, because we again start to say like, ah, it's coming in 10 years from now on and it's always coming in 20, 10 years. So, But let's leave it like this. Now, so Yaniv, now let's go even deeper in that. So what are the key components that characterize traditional IT socks versus the V socks? I think a big part of the focus of IT socks is around one IT assets of the company then second, a lot of focus on security platforms that provide security insights into the ongoing activities of the network, of the hosts in the companies, you know, like firewalls and like endpoint protection and the like. That world has evolved a lot in the last 10 or 15 years. There is a lot of standardization there, as we've seen in IT. There are not so many types of operating systems for computers, for example, right? We can name just a three or four maybe. And, and the same goes also for you know, servers. The same goes for network equipment. Then again, the industry has worked a lot to standardize these sort of things. And as such, we, there are standard solutions for that. For the SOC, there is a lot of uh, knowledge transfer happening in that area. Again, something that has started booming in the last years. We're seeing many methods that are, are developed globally to address this type of sort of classic IT security threats. What we're seeing in, in the automotive space and in VSOX is extremely different. There is, I would say, almost zero standardization in the inner workings of OEMs and connected vehicles. We're seeing proprietary protocols being used by OEMs. We're seeing very different approaches to how OEMs integrate their connected uh, capabilities. And as such, and, and also and maybe in addition to that, the assets that are monitored, not that, just that they're not standardized, they're also owned by someone else. So you have the vehicle owners as, as the owners of the, of the assets, whether it's a fleet or it's a, a citizen, you know, personal uh, a vehicle, for example. There are a lot of complexities into how to handle uh, and, and be able to respond and, and work on, on these assets. And I think some of the complexities that we see there, again, no standardization. We need to be as part of you know, what we do at Upstream. Very large part of, of the effort that we provide is basically to custom tailor our solutions to OEMs. And we've done it enough to be very proficient at it, 
But again, there is still this complexity that needs to be conquered uh, while we approach that. I think that's, again, a major sort of differentiator between an IT SOC and a, and a VSOC in that regard. The wish for standardization is very well known in so many parts of the OEM industry, right? So, and do you have an idea who could be the right driving force to bring the standardization also in this area forward? I think that's a very good question. I think that uh, what, what we've seen, at least in the IT industry, is the constant hammering of attacks, right? It, it necessitated, in some cases, the, the companies working to consolidate their solutions. Because at, at some point, you know, companies couldn't handle you know, the, the plethora of different solutions that they need to address. And, and so the companies that worked together, and we've seen many of these initiatives, we also see this in the automotive world, that are working together to sort of build these consortiums to have unified solutions. And I think that, like I said, we're already seeing that. Maybe the focus is not specifically security at this point in time, but I'm pretty sure that it will evolve as well and we'll see this sort of consortium working on, I would say, some consolidated solutions for the industry that will make our type of work of, of monitoring much, much easier. Absolutely. It can save you a lot of time and energy and resources. No? So, and now let's talk a little bit about lifecycle management. And Giuseppe, how do you ensure in collaboration with the OEMs that the safety systems of today will still be relevant tomorrow? And I especially uh, emphasize that how can the hardware be able to cope with the constant development? I mean, software, it's easy. You make the upgrades, etc. But how is it about the hardware? I would say that it's not only the hardware that uh, at some point will not be updatable, if you will. Software itself degrades. That, that's a fact. So in terms of supporting a customer on their journey, we, we collaborate very closely in order to build the detection capabilities that are needed based on the vehicle model and make that are operating. And in some cases, imagine new EV type of vehicles. We see something like 2.5 million signals per hour being ingested in our platform. So that's really a huge amount of, of data that is analyzed. Now, at some point, hardware and software need to be upgraded. Probably it's easier for software, as you mentioned, to be updated. But again, one of the biggest challenge for cybersecurity is the very long life cycle of vehicles. And if you think of not classic passenger cars, which statistically they get changed every 12 years, but buses, tractors, uh, other type of vehicle who run for 30, 40 years, it's literally impossible. So what we help our customers is understand what is the timeline that a, a service, a feature, uh, a capability can be active while safeguarded. And when potentially is also the time to say, I want to switch off this capability or services because they cannot be protected any longer. And so basically, nowadays, you count for 12 years, when I understood that correctly, right? For the statistical average. Well, it's not that we count it. It's just a, an, an average for when uh, vehicles get kind of updated. So people, people buying behavior is just statistically that. But I'm sure we know how long vehicle can, can be on the road. And uh, in, in particular, in countries where... Uh, it's, it's still a very expensive asset, right? So 
In some cases, uh, vehicles will run also for 25 years. Passenger cars will run for 25 years uh, in various countries. And, and therefore, it's really important to understand what is the risk level? What is the exposure? Is there a way to mitigate it? What is the appropriate response? And eventually, the response could be at some point to say, we can no longer support it. So we need to find a way to, to switch it off. Mm-hmm. So now we still go a bit deeper in the technical direction. So, Yaniv, could you give me, let's say, the benefits of having a separate VSOC versus an integrated IT or TSOC infrastructure in connected vehicles? I think at the present point in time, it's almost impossible to integrate a VSOC with a different type of operation. And that, I think, goes back to the previous point that we discussed about standardization and sort of what is the learning curve that you need to do in order to be able to detect, you know, monitor and respond to what the VSOC does, right, which is purely automotive. Again, there's a very steep learning curve. And again, unlike, you know, that we'll see in, in a SOC or in general IT security organization, you have online courses, right, for every type of firewall out there, for every type of endpoint protection. You know, you have the basics, people learning this in school now. This is not the case yet in automotive. There is no abundance of information available for everyone to quickly and easily learn online. And so that information, that knowledge is just not out there yet, that level that still we have, a, like I said, a steep learning curve. So that's the knowledge and, and, and that is, I'd say, one aspect. And then the other is sort of the effort of undertaking sort of a completely new domain into an existing IT SOC. For example, I've been you know, working either building, running, or consulting to IT SOCs for the past almost 15 years now never came across a SOC when they would, you know, just sit, sit there idly and not being, you know, fully bombarded with alert, what we call alert fatigue in the industry and being, you know, bombarded with new types of data sources, new types of threats for them to be able to take something as massive as the core business of the OEM. That is a huge undertaking to do. And so at this point in time, I don't think we've seen many, if any even, cases of where the IT SOC would take this responsibility. Again, at this point in time, it can change in a few years, right? When some of these things are more commoditized, some of this information is, is more readily available. Maybe there will be, again, standardized solutions to that. But that's probably a few years to come. I'm an optimist, so I believe that will yeah. change for the better. <laughs> some people might argue, okay, but the hackers will also get better. But yeah, let's keep it like this. So and now we got a bit of an overview of how the concept of cybersecurity work and what kind of attacks they are and how the system deal with them. So, Giuseppe, what is Upstream's current product and service portfolio to meet these market needs in general? I think it's clear that Upstream is on the monitoring side of things. So we're not in the development. We are not in the production area. Uh, Upstream focus is 100% on the Uh, enablement and the monitoring of the smart mobility ecosystem. And to that end, our portfolio has a technology platform. Uh, we talked about digital twin. That's something that is at the core to enable that data-driven insight and knowledge into the anomalies. Secondly, Yaniv talked about the threat intelligence capabilities. So in order to not only identify threats as they happen because you have a detection platform, but you want to actually anticipate, uh, look in deep and dark web and look a little bit into the future to have a 
sort of an early warning system, what's uh, around the corner and what you need to be aware of. So the second pillar is uh, around threat intelligence specific for the automotive industry or the mobility industry. And the third one is, we talked about vehicle security operation centers, is the actual operation of the platform that we have built. So supporting our customers in their day-to-day activities. And in some cases, our customers have asked Upstream to support them on this journey with the help of, for instance, playbooks or even people who can serve as analysts and support them because still one of the biggest challenge in the industry in general, uh, independent if it's automotive or not, is the lack of skills and resources. And that's even more so the case in a niche at the intersection of automotive and cybersecurity. So that's how we help our customers not only leverage the insights that they gain from the intelligence piece or the detection capabilities of the platform, but also supporting with people to make their cybersecurity programs more robust. Are you actually also currently hiring at Upstream? Upstream is always keen to attract highly skilled, talented people. Uh, It's something that we look constantly. And uh, if there are right candidates, which fit into the various area and organization units that we have, we always appreciate and we'll we'll have interviews and uh, we'll bring them on board. And feel free to have a look at our website or our LinkedIn page. You will see all these open positions. So actually also to our listeners, so if you are highly skilled and talented and interested in cybersecurity and understanding how it all works, so also reach out to Giuseppe or Yaniv and yeah, let's see where it goes now. You also mentioned, Giuseppe, the look into the future. And that's exactly what we are going to do as next step. So, Yanif, let's have really that glimpse into the future. So, what will the VSOC look like in five or ten years? So, And will its primary focus remain cybersecurity or will it change? Looking ahead, and it's always uh, difficult, right? We see the different paths that can emerge. Could be all at once, could be several. I think uh, one of the things to, to look into first or to ask first is who will be running the VSOC? So today is almost purely the OEMs. That won't necessarily be the case in the future. But staying maybe with the OEMs, I think that one very possible direction is the one that Giuseppe mentioned before, sort of a VSOC operating as part of a larger operating center, like a vehicle operation center or you know, something of that sort. And we, we, we see that or, or the plan to do this in, in some of the OEMs, where basically there are a lot of elements, a lot of operational elements to handle with the vehicles, such as over there updates and, and many more diagnostic and things of that sort that sort of intertwine with, with cybersecurity, intertwine with, again, other different types of operational aspects that uh, can be handled in a single function. So that could be one path. A different one, and we mentioned, you know, for example, autonomous vehicles or you know some of the things that we look a bit ahead right in the industry, for example, smart cities. And, and things of that sort. So we, we or fleet owners or, or fleets of autonomous vehicles, right? And, and we mentioned, I think, some of them even. And then we can see, I think, different type of VSOCs. Again, not run by the OEMs, but by these sort of new or emerging players. And then we, we might, you know, see a bit of a, a different focus. So not just operational focus, 
or not just cybersecurity focus, but for example, focus on, on fraud or focus on safety or privacy, as you mentioned before. And in that area, sort of, we, the, you know, these players, we need to sort of control a very complex ecosystem and the security behind it. And that, I think, is something that we will see and together with new capabilities that we don't have at this point in time, for example, to shut down remotely a vehicle, for example. And, and things uh, of that sort might be even required by regulators as, as we will most likely, you know, maybe I'm not an optimist like you, uh, we'll see this sort of attacks that will have real impact on the safety of, of drivers, safety of, of you know, people in the street even. And, and that, in that regard, I think we will see a different type of operation. Let me show still an optimistic view on the future, and I ex- will explain why I see it this way. Look, we talk about cybersecurity. It can be a very dark topic, right? So, but still, I mean, what, what you said, what you just said, it looks like a very bright future for you because you will not be only active in the automotive area, but you will be active in so many other industries as well. So I see definitely a bright future for you. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I so hope you we. see just a little so part of that. So <laughs> and now, Giuseppe, let's talk about collaborations. And especially when it comes to cybersecurity, all companies want to keep it a secret which technologies and service providers they work with. I mean, for a good reason, right? But nevertheless, can you give us an overview, at least as far as it's possible, where you have customers and cooperation partners? And are you also looking for new collaboration partners? Yes, so you're right. Working in cybersecurity, it's uh, always a sensitive thing to share uh, technology, services, customers, etc., etc. What we can share, though, is uh, the obvious things like uh, we are part of industry consortia like uh, Auto ISAC, ASRG. These are very relevant and important communities because we talked about sharing information. The industry understands that uh, competition in terms of future mobility shouldn't be around cybersecurity. That should be something that is of everyone concern. So uh, that's important one in terms of customers. Obviously, we are part of the automotive uh, world. So we work to a certain degree and level with all the major uh, known uh, and new entrants in this field. In terms of threat intelligence, we had the public press release, so we can (laughs) cite Marelli as one of our customers. Also, a public event with Thyssen Krupp on a a bigger event. Uh, They are users of the threat intelligence that we provide. But beyond that, as it's clear, and when we talk about smart mobility, it's not only the automotive players or the automotive ecosystem, I think the ecosystem is getting closer and closer because the adjacent industries uh, are very relevant and they all build upon the data that is generated in, in this regard. Meaning if you have vehicles, you need insurance, for instance. So it's not a surprise that one of the largest investors in upstream is an insurance company, MSI for instance. So you will need also to work with partners who are in the mobility or fleet area. You need to work with relevant players in the EV world. So charging station is an important new connector between the vehicle world, the mobile world, and uh, the new concept of uh, electrification and decarbonization. So it's important to have 
these type of uh, relationship, collaboration and partnering. And therefore, I think uh, you cannot confine it just to, to automotive. We are very open to collaboration. Um, as I mentioned with the report, we believe that giving is really important. So sharing expertise and let the ecosystem grow. There, there will be a place for all players at the end of the day, because in cyber, there are so many niches and each and every organization is really good at doing one specific thing. And therefore there's room and collaboration in, in all those areas, because at the end of the day, you need to connect the dots and, and the way to do it is to work with these ecosystem and various industries, mobility, insurance, automotive, uh, you name it, transportation at large, that is very relevant and that's where we feel at home. I definitely agree on that, that collaborations will always win over competition. So therefore also, once again, call out to our audience. If you are interested in collaborating with Upstream, go ahead and reach out to us or directly to uh, uh, Giuseppe and Yaniv. And you actually, Giuseppe, mentioned already um, something that I want to ask because Electrification is a thing, now it's happening. So the shift to electric vehicles is already now not the future, but it's present. And that means that our vehicles will be connected to charging stations and they also need to have certain, certain cybersecurity standards, let's say. Would you rate, Yaniv, it as the next huge challenge for the whole industry? In short, I would. I think it already is. And we've... No, but please in long. Of course, of course, I will. <laughs> We're already seeing, you know, attacks on, on this, and maybe I'll mention it in a minute. But let's maybe try to think of, of the differences between electrical charging and sort of the convention of gas stations, right? There are many, many differences, and some of them, I think, have a key importance to our discussion here. For example, gas stations are usually, right, run by uh, energy companies, large energy companies with resources, right, to protect, to secure their endpoints. And, you know, I have a long history of doing so. We're seeing different types of players here. So we'll, we'll see, you know, relatively small companies, right, running these sort of connected, even hyper-converged, you know, charging stations with the vehicles connecting to the grid, providing almost a, a critical infrastructure. So that's not something that you usually see. And so this, this could be sort of one aspect to it. Uh, there are also charging stations or equipment uh, in homes, right? So people charge also the vehicles in homes. And many of these chargers these days are also connected, connected to the internet, connected to Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and to the vehicles themselves. Again, a new attack surface that never existed. No one has a gas station at home. And then also try to, you know, couple these with the, you know, the, the mere uh, uh, notion that there are also commercial aspects to it. So again, you know, you need to buy, for example, or, or to pay for the services. And again, like we mentioned before, the more that you have chances to monetize, an attacker has chances to monetize, the more motivation to attack these sort of things. So, and maybe lastly, you know, there are also new protocols that uh, facilitate this type of, of connectivity that haven't been tested at a very loud scale uh, to handle cybersecurity, like we've seen in, for example, I don't know, e-commerce activities, right? And so this hasn't really been tested. And uh, in the past, at the risk of sounding uh, not optimistic again, this is uh, something that uh, we be definitely believe can, can be uh, exploited. And, and as I mentioned in the beginning, we've already seen attacks, right, in, in the Russia-Ukraine wars. So we've seen compromise 
of uh, charging stations all across Russia, for example. Again, that's just one example of uh, maybe a, a unique motivation. But again, as we see more and more of these, we'll see more types of motivations. And again, the, the attack surface continues to grow. And we definitely believe this is going to be a challenge. And, and we are already starting to see our regulators starting to work on that in Europe and the U.S. And I'm sure that we'll see more of that in, in the years to come. And but definitely a, a very big focus for us and, and our clients as well. And good to see that you're already involved in that, that let's say, can, can learn from the very early beginning and also provide some solution for your customers. And now we are moving from the technical discussion over to some inspiration, self-development and challenges. So a question that goes now to both of you. You both work in cybersecurity for many, many, many years. And we heard that already, that can be really dark. No? So, so it means you don't exactly see the best side of human psychology. So do you tend to transfer this distrust to the areas of your life outside of work? And what are the main points you look for to assess if you can trust someone? That's a very interesting question. I would say, yes, I'm probably biased. Obviously, I would say more sensitive to see information as it is uh, represented and yeah, eventually even try to contextualize if that information or that impression is something that can be trustworthy or not. Uh, so I would say, yes, I, uh, I feel that uh, after many years, I, I feel I, I'm looking always twice to uh, things. So context is very, very important. Then, huh? so, and Yanni, for you now? I think many of us in the industry have either been born with or developed sort of a security mindset, right? And, and I can give you an example that is outside of work, right? For example, when I enter an airport, which is like an example of a location with sometimes extreme security measures, right? Physical measures, not anything related with cyber usually. I'm always aware of, you know, why is that set up this way or that way? And maybe there is something that is, is vulnerable in that setup. And there is a lot of thought coming into that. So airports are usually, again, like a an example of something that is, is pretty secure, I think, at least these days. And and this type of security mindset, I think, comes with us to, to different types of areas that are, are have nothing to do with work. And I, I do hope that it didn't affect my ability to, to trust people. I don't think it has. And you still fly, no? So <laughs> basically. Yeah, I can, I can still fly very easily and, and, and I feel safe. But I think, you know, the, the, the key aspect to it is, is that we see not just as security professionals at work, but also, for example, our family and friends that are also the target of, of security attacks and also teaching them, you know, how to be able to spot these sort of things. I think, again, this is, this is uh, something that is already part of our lives. So we should be able to handle it and, and teach others, you know, how to handle it as well. As long as you are really aware of you being biased, yes. no? so yes. that you have this background, yeah. That's true. I get a lot of uh, questions uh, like, hey, can I click on this link? Is it safe? <laughs> it will come and ask someone who may know better. And actually, let me also make a, let's say, a follow-up question on that, because, uh, I mean, Yaniv, you have really interesting background. No? So you have a degree in management and psychology. You did your master's in security and diplomacy for executives. No? So highly interesting topic. So Which key points from your studies do you apply most in life then also, again, outside of the work? So it's, again, a related question. Yes, and, and note that I, I didn't learn or study anything related with cybersecurity. Uh, so a big part of, of me choosing this is, is also to serve me outside of work. And um, maybe to pick sort of one example, 
in the security and the diplomacy uh, study that I had around uh, international negotiations. And this sounds very work-related, but as we found out during that course, and, and I found that since a lot of our personal life is also about negotiation. It could be with the kids, with the wife, with you know, everything. And I think that uh, we learned a lot of tools in order to be able to, to think about it from a different point of view. Again, just to name maybe one, one area would that help me in my personal life. Oh, negotiation is a huge topic, actually. When you can master that, wow, amazing. <laughs> so I kind of, um, let's say, positively envy you in that. And Giuseppe, you knew that I will ask this question because you have founded startup in the past. So, and you know that I ask all, all the time the question to my guests when they did that, not so previously. So what were your lessons learned from that time and how does it help you while working for a scale-up company now, like upstream is? Yeah, I think I have two answers to that. So one is my lessons learned is that you have to find a passion so that the work you do doesn't feel like work, but it's like giving you joy and you don't really look at the, the clock. So you're really passionate about doing the stuff that you do. The other lessons learned, because I've also worked in large organizations, I would say is that size doesn't matter. What matters is how big the idea behind the company is and what's the purpose of the company. And I feel that I have been blessed to work with people and organizations who had very clear uh, in mind what that is and that has uh, influenced me a lot. So it's really important to follow that path for me. Uh, it had ha has helped to really let me understand what I want to do in life and what type of career path to follow. So that would be my two lessons learned here. Mm -hmm. And they are very much linked with each other. And actually, if you can combine that, that's also a great, great lesson, actually. And now, be optimistic or not. I mean, but I have a question for you, Yaniv, about how do you handle difficulties? So what is your best strategy to overcome challenges and difficult times? What do you do usually? I think many times the, the challenges arise from uh, complexity. And, and this is something that my work at BCG, we used to call conquer complexity, sort of breaking down complex problems to smaller pieces and handling them sort of one by one. And doing so also by integrating and, and working with different people from different backgrounds, bringing different approaches to find solutions to these problems. So again, to sort of simplify and then to tackle sort of one by one, something that I learned that could be of, of great value. Something that I take with me as well. So like uh, decomplexify and yeah, separate the problems one yep. by another and do also brainstorming with a lot of other people, seeing the world maybe completely different as you do. Yeah, and it's actually, I think, a very pressing issue in, in, in cybersecurity. Now I'm going back to work, right? But some of these things are rather complex and you want to communicate them, for example, with executive management, you need to be able to simplify them. And uh, this is, I think, a very important also aspect of our work in order to do that. By the way, no need to say sorry, because I do not define like, oh, there's work and there's life. No, life is everything what, what uh, let's say, consists of it. No? So it, it means also business is a huge part of it. No? So it is just it is. So, Giuseppe, what is the best advice that you ever heard? Yeah, that's uh, a tough one. I think the best advice that I, I ever heard is related to if you want to grow, whatever the area, personal, business, health, you name it, 
you got to get out of the comfort zone because growth comes with some sort of pain and stepping out can open up a whole new world. And I think I've done it a few times throughout my, my life. And uh, each time it was positive to have stepped out and uh, actually taking that risk because with risk comes often a lot of uh, big rewards. And uh, I would say that was the best advice that I have heard when I was young, <laughs> started my sort of uh, after the studies uh, business journey. Very, very nice advice, actually, that growth comes with a little bit of pain and living your comfort zone. Eh? It is always misleading that comfort zone sounds so cute and yeah, it's comfort inside, eh? so, but it's actually you have to live it to, to feel good to be honest. No? So, and now it goes in the same direction. So life motto, and that goes to both of you. What is your life motto? So Yanith, maybe now? For me, it would be, if you do something, do it right. I think it's part of the thing that is behind it is how to continuously drive for self-development and self-growth. And uh, this definitely is a necessity in the cybersecurity area where this you know, uh, domain is, is reinventing itself constantly. Uh, but in other areas as well, you don't have to be perfect in what you do, but you do need to think, how can I get better? How can I develop further? How can I develop the people around me? And to be aware of that, at least, at least for me, this is a, a big part of my uh, life model. That is actually the essence of uh, growth mindset. Yeah, I guess do it right and also do it better no? every time you do it. <laughs> okay, Giuseppe, what is it for you? What is your life model? Yeah, for me, it's uh, uh, something that I believe is uh, is a great quote that I heard and it perfectly fits to my my mindset. So it goes like, uh, grant me the serenity to accept the things that uh, I can change. Uh, give me the courage to change the things that I can change. But give me also the wisdom to know the difference between one and another. And I think that is really important. That is very, very good one. One of my favorites, actually. I always look for new inspiring wisdom pieces from my guests. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing also your time with me, be it that we talked about the technical topics, be it that we talked about a lot of examples and also what kind of uh, products you have in your current portfolio, but that we talked also about collaborations, one of my favorite topics as well. And also that you really shared with me a little bit of your wisdom, advices, life mottos, something that can really inspire not just me, but also our audience. Thank you very much for that. First of all, thank you, Ludmila, for hosting us here. And very happy you know, to share some of the things that we'll be doing, some of the insights that we have for the industry. And I hope that we can continue and make the same uh, impact or even greater impact as we progress. And, and thank you, of course, for the listeners for listening in. Yeah, I would like uh, also to thank you, Ludmilla. I remember when we first met, it was at the IA almost a year ago. I thought you were a journalist asking a few questions on our booth, but then found out uh, this very energetic, inspiring person who you are. And you remember also I told you that uh, for me, you are like the former Nokia slogan, Connecting people, <laughs> that's exactly what you do. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, spending the time today with you and uh, Yaniv. And uh, I wish you all the best and keep doing what you do because you're amazing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Wow, <laughs> that is true. That is exactly how we met. Ne? I asked so many questions because I was just curious and interested to know, like I always am. Ne? So, and Giuseppe, like, mm? who is that? And you always tried to look at my badge, you know, then you saw it and you're like, okay, maybe media, maybe journalist. <laughs> I told you I'm biased because of cyber, so I was trying to understand <laughs> which angle you were coming from. What? So, like, she's not trying to sell me anything. That That exactly. is suspicious, exactly. right? <laughs> exactly. That was the anomaly there. There are many ways to achieve a more sustainable future. There are many companies and innovative leaders who choose and actively go very different ways. Let's just not forget one thing. No matter how different the ways are, The big goal is one and the same. See you very soon in the next episode.